0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: Welcome to another episode of Woods and Waters Project Podcast. This is your host, Steph, and we have a completely epic episode this week. Join me as I interview James, who is a... A guide, houndsman, and does some amazing work for the state of Washington, collaring lions, uh, watching their progress, and we talk all about how that's even done. Like the idea of collaring a mountain lion sounded crazy to me, and the purpose behind it, and the work they're doing for the state for bears and lions. Working with hounds is incredible. He also guides with hounds, mountain lion hunting, in, in Idaho and if you're interested at all in learning to hunt with hounds, or your houndsman in general, this is your dude. This is your episode. We have not had one that was like back-to-back all about this subject before. We could have talked for hours. We would love to have him back, but everyone meet James. Let's get into it. get an opportunity to talk about like houndsmen on the podcast and just that lifestyle and understanding it and and just any putting any sort of light to it I really yeah. like to mention it if it comes up in conversation or if, if you know if that person's a houndsman um just from my experience the last couple of years I just started coon hunting and I love it and have so much respect and understanding for it now uh and, and you know we've We've ran dogs for deer and hogs and coyotes and bear. I haven't done lion yet, Um, but it's like broadened my like thought process on it so much. And I feel very protective of that lifestyle now. And just because I understand it. And I think there's just so much that's misunderstood.
2: Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a ton that's misunderstood. And, you know, a, a lot of it comes from just, um, I guess, years of, of getting a bad reputation. And, uh, seems to be kind of, I don't want to say new age, but I would say that this, this next generation of houndsmen, um, and actually even the guys that are, you know, a little bit older than me. Um, I think we definitely have a different, a different feeling for it, I guess, than maybe guys in the past did. Um, I think some of the newer styles of training dogs and just handling dogs uh, has changed a lot. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so there was, you know, at one point in time, a lot of guys that ran hounds uh, specifically just used them as a tool and they were treated as a tool. And I think that's where a lot of the bad reputation came from, where, you know, nowadays it seems to be, a lot more commonplace that you know these aren't just a tool these dogs are you know part of our family they're part of you look at them like you know the same way you look at your kids um, and so i think that's something that i think that's something that's going <clears> to <throat> continue to take a while you know to change that public image of houndsman but and then you know alongside of that too there's there's always been the you know the guys that sit in a whitetail stand you know, think the guys that are running deer are lazy or, um, you know, you have a lot of guys that are even, you know, other hunters included that, uh, just don't support it for, you know, whatever reason. And I think a lot of those guys that don't support it have never done it, you know, and when you go and actually run dogs and, and get a feel for how the whole thing works. I mean, it's, it's a lot more work than a lot of people think it is.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> there's not a whole lot that's, you know, really easy about it. And I, I've, so for the last, I guess, five years or so um, in Washington state, I've been me and a group of guys pushed real hard and, and finally got a bill through legislation to uh, allow us to train our dogs because we, There's a select group of houndsmen within the state that, uh, and I guess I should start this by saying, Washington State outlawed hound hunting in 1996. And so, other than for coon, but everything else they closed. Um, But they still use houndsmen quite regularly for, you know, problem bears, problem lions, uh, depredation type work and along with a lot of collaring work. And so we uh, pushed through, got through legislation, and that was a process in itself. I mean, coming from that side of the state where all of our decisions are made is about the most liberal place you can be on earth. And so it took a lot to change a lot of views on, on how the whole process worked. And by the time it was done, uh, we stood there with uh, HSUS, you know, Humane Society guy um, on, the, on the Senate floor, and he walked around and got signatures for us on our bill. And, you know, on that first initial meeting, Humane Society was in there, and they had concerns about how the whole thing was going to work out, um, you know, how to set, I guess, list of expectations that they hoped to see. And every one of those, you know, worries that they had, um, like, you know, they didn't want anybody to be involved that had had animal cruelty charges. Well, either do I. I mean, we don't need guys out there that are, you know, beating on their dogs. And if, if you have animal cruelty charges, right. chances are, you you know, we don't want that involved in in what we have going. And so I think it really... <clears throat> open the eyes on a lot of people and through that you know you you meet somebody that's highly against it or doesn't understand it and and just invite them to come along you know come along for a day and watch how this goes and go see a lion in a tree and and you know watch the whole process from start to finish before you have such a negative opinion on it um and so i think that's a you know, that's something that we're going to have to, as houndsmen in general, I'm going to have to continue to fight through. And I think, you know, social media can be a great tool to, to help that process along, but it can also be, I mean, used against houndsmen or hunters in general so easily that, you know, it's almost kind of like, we have to police ourselves somewhat on on you know what you're putting out there on social media just because it it can very easily be used against you just as well as it could be used to help promote the sport
1: yeah and even something as simple as and this goes for so many different types of hunting but something as simple as just a just a picture with your animal you know that you got I mean that can be misconstrued so easy but and just purely from the fact of so it hunters are a small population of the world and let alone you know houndsmen are probably an even much smaller percentage of just like the general population so why would they why would they understand it you know why they didn't grow up doing it they didn't they it's so foreign to them and that's not Probably their fault like there it it could be easy to look at something as a mountain lion picture or you know it being um like like dogs going after it you could look at that and just make so many assumptions if you're not educated and don't have a background in it and I almost don't blame people but then it's kind of on the other side it's you don't want to stop sharing about what you love because the people who do get it get it and support it and you're proud and there's work that was put in and it's such a cool lifestyle and it's such a cool it's, it's just such a cool experience so I feel like that all the time I I've talked to I think it's been mentioned multiple times in the podcast now um there's a few people who are pretty big in the hunting industry that really don't show the uh like grip and grin style photos anymore like they just won't
2: yeah
1: um just because they've gotten so much pushback uh, from it so
2: yeah you know and that's kind of really where where I've been at for quite a little while is it, it kind of started basically when you know when I started working hand in hand with with the state and with legislation and you know working with a bunch of people who didn't understand it um, you know they were of course, probably obviously watching our social media like Hawks. And, you know, I think if you're going to do it, um, my thought process and it's always been, you know, try to make the picture tasteful as possible, wipe the blood away, close their mouth, don't have their tongue hanging out, you know, little things like that where it can change the entire way a person looks at the picture, I feel like um
0: yeah definitely and
2: and so yeah i i mean i think you see a lot more of that now and it is a shame because like you say it's you know something that you're proud of and at the same time you don't want to cause pushback or give somebody any sort of a reason to to try to fight against what what you love in your lifestyle
1: yeah absolutely and we just like started getting into it but i i am genuinely interested in what you do and like your experiences and um I feel like in this podcast there's gonna be so many things that I, I I don't maybe get to like ask and uncover but I'm really excited to get into all of this uh James thank you so much again for being on the podcast and talking with me today about hounds and houndsmen and mountain lions and all of the things we're going to discuss today. Uh, if if you would, just for people who don't know who you are, would you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, so uh, my name is James Van Geistel and I uh, I grew up in eastern Washington. Um, I first, I guess, got introduced into into hounds when I was oh I guess about 15 years old. Um, One of my best friends, his dad had coon dogs and we kind of started running around with him and by the time we were 16 years old we had our own dogs and once we had a driver's license it was kind of all hell broke loose from there and um, it was just one of those things that you know the first time I did it I was I was hooked and uh, just couldn't get enough of it. And so started raising our own dogs and, and hunting bears and hunting coons and hunting lions. And um, I can still remember there, there used to be a, well, I think it might still be in print, but full cry magazine, you know, this was way back before anyone was really on the internet or, you know, we didn't have a cell phone, nothing like that. And we'd get full cry magazine and go through that thing every month and look for ads of, of guys selling pups and had all these different ideas about, you know, well, let's get a dog from the desert cause it's going to have a better nose and, and on and on, you know, we were young and, and just kind of getting into it and didn't really know any better. And I can still remember writing letters off to these guys that had ads in full cry and, and trying to buy pups off of them and getting dogs shipped up from texas and kind of all over the place and so it was one of those things that you know some people get into it and it it can be more of a hobby and uh you know something that you do every once in a while or whatever but it was one of those things that once i started i i could stop and uh good or bad it it stuck with me and has kind of led me to I guess, where I'm at now, Um, I do a lot of collaring work within the State Department, as well as uh, a few of the tribes that are in the Northeast Washington District. We've done a little bit of collaring over in the Idaho Panhandle. Um, I do a lot of depredation work. We, you know, here in Washington State, the use of dogs has been outlawed since 1996, except for within the confines of the Indian reservations where they still allow it. Um, so in 1996, there was a lot of houndsmen that that sold out, got rid of all their dogs, got rid of all their equipment. And in turn, you know, lion populations continued to rise, bear populations continued to rise. And within the last six or seven years, um, it's, it's really gotten to the point where you can, you can almost make it a full-time job. Um, the phone rings pretty consistently every week with, you know, a problem line somewhere. Um, and so I started doing depredation work for the state when I was 18 years old. Uh, I can still remember that first go around. I was at work and, uh, was working for the national park service my boss came and found me and said hey there's there's some guys from state fish and wildlife here to talk to you and i'm like oh great what did i do you know and so they uh they tracked me down and had a lion that had come down right on the edge of town and there were some kids playing hide and seek and swatted one of the kids in the brush kid happened to be crouched down right next to the lion, i guess and uh it had happened the night before in the dark and so they came and investigated it and it was indeed a lion and so they asked if i'd help and went over there with dogs and turned dogs loose and didn't really know how well it was going to work uh it was middle of august and hot and at the time i didn't really have the caliber of dogs that i have now um we thought they were the best thing on earth but as you progress you realize that wasn't necessarily the case and so we did end up catching that cat um ended up taking care of it and that's kind of when the depredation work started and it's been pretty consistent through there um the collaring work we've kind of just started in the last six or seven years um Did a predator prey project for the state of Washington where they were, we were collaring lions and they were collaring wolves and as well as white-tailed deer up in the northeast section of Washington state and kind of monitoring lion behavior within, you know, living within wolves and, you know, how much deer lions were really eating, you know, how many were killed by wolves and um, it was a good project it <clears throat> kind of towards the end came into you know we run into a little bit of issues with biologist's way of thinking and you know kind of the whole process of it but um, yeah it, it turned out to be a pretty good project and the project that we're doing now is actually one that between me and a couple buddies kind of came up with the idea I have a real good friend who's a large carnivore biologist for the Kalispell tribe. And <clears throat> we're trying to prove to the state of Washington that you can modify lion behavior with the use of dogs. And so you can mitigate a lot of these depredations before they happen. If, if you're running these cats and pushing them away from areas they should be in. Um, and if you look at other States like Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, um, Colorado, like states where you're legally allowed to run dogs, they have way less depredation problems than than Washington State does. And so, we started this project. Um, the Kalispell Tribe is is funding it, and you know we have donations. And um, actually, W Hunting Supplies worked with Garmin and and helped supply us a bunch of collars. And so, what we're doing is We're catching lions that are living within close proximity to either town or, you know, farmhouses um, in close proximity to people. And we're doing this based off of, you know, somebody reports they see a cat or in the wintertime, obviously, you can see tracks. And so we're collaring these cats and fitting them with a trite or a regular wildlife telemetry collar as well as a garmin t5 mini collar which is you know real similar to what a lot of guys run on their dogs same collar and you can turn that collar on and off from a garmin handheld gps unit so putting collars on these cats um giving them seven days off and then going out relocating them turning that garmin collar on and at that point we're getting a real-time two and a half second update and you can sit actually in the truck and watch that cat's movements right from your garmin device it's it's pretty wild um but anyhow we're playing a podcast at 80 decibels through a small bluetooth speaker once we locate that cat and we're just walking directly at that line with the sound of human voices and seeing how close you can get to that cat before it mobilizes how far it goes once it leaves and then giving it 10 to 15 minutes turning dogs loose on it running it treeing it and then pulling back out of there and giving it another seven days off and going and repeat the process um and it's showing you know so far we've done Oh, I don't even know. I think we're up to 57 lions. Um, and each one of those cats has been run five times. So you're looking at close to 300 trees there, I guess, or maybe even a little more than that. But, um, what we're seeing so far, what seems to really be shining through is the more times you run these lines with dogs, the more of a natural fear you're putting back into them. Um, that first time that you walk in on it after it's been captured, a lot of times you'll get within, I've been in as close as 12 feet and that line was in the thick brush and it stayed there for five minutes, 12 feet away from me and then finally mobilized and only went 35, 40 yards and stopped. And by the third time we ran that same line, it was 560 yards (laughs) just from the sound of human voices and that cat was mobilizing and getting out of there and turning dogs loose on it it was well over 1500 yards um so it so far our results are proven that you really can excuse me modify line behavior with these dogs we'll see i guess what that ends up meaning and what that looks like for the state when it's all said and done, but, um, that's a project that I've, I've really put a lot of work into these last few years. And it's something that, you know, we're 12 months out of the year, as long as it's not too hot for the dogs and not too hot, you know, you can safely catch that lion. Um, we're working on it all the time. And then in between all of that, um, I also guide, I also guide lion hunts out of North Idaho, uh, from December 14th until the end of March, um, we're guiding lion hunts out of North Idaho. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of dog work. Um, hounds have definitely been pretty much fully connected to my life for quite a few years now. And it's, it's definitely one of those deals where at this point in time, it's, it's really not just a hobby. It's not a sport. It's, it's a full on lifestyle. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that come along with, you know, owning dogs and the amount of time that you put into them, um, you know, even compared to, even compared to the amount of time you put into a bird dog, or you know, the amount of time you put into a pet at your house. Um, it's, it can definitely be a lot of work, but you know, it is really rewarding and there's, there's nowhere else I'd rather be than, Standing at the base of a tree with my dogs, you know, and with a line up in the air, um, it's something that, no matter how hard it gets or you have bad days, uh, it's something I would never trade for anything. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I'm, I really want to follow along and see the work that you're doing with, with the lions and showing like they're staying further and further away like if that will have any effect on the state and hunting them again like do you think it could have that impact since it's been
2: you You know know, that's really what we're kind of hoping um yeah the the only thing that really sucks with with the way that they banned it in washington state is um it wasn't done through fish and wildlife so it was actually a law pushed through the senate and signed by the governor um and went to a public vote and that's what that's what removed it and so there's a lot of people within the department of fish and wildlife that would love to see us get it back just because it would it would stop a lot of work for them or you know help with a lot of work for them um but something that you're going to have to do in order to ever get that lion season back is is really change the minds of a lot of people and you know if you can sit down and prove you know, we're actually saving cougars' lives by doing this um, and not having to go in and, and kill them because of a depredation because um, Washington does have a pretty much a zero-tolerance policy on that. If, if a lion comes in and kills anything domestic, it can be as small as a, one single chicken. Um, if that happens, they call, and I would say 99% of the time, we end up killing that lion. Um, even if it takes, you know, multiple days or whatever, it's gotten to the point where I, I do have really effective dogs in that aspect. And if you send me out to catch that cat, I'm going to catch that cat. And so <laughs> you know, we're, we're really saving a lot of lions lives by doing this. And so somebody that, you know, looks at it and, says well no i don't think we should ever hunt a cougar i love you know cougars um you know the amount of cats we've saved by doing this is is incredible we've never had to this day in the last three years since the study started um we have not had a lion that we've handled and collared uh be the cause of a depredation wow so, that's awesome Yeah. I mean, we, we ear take every cat. So even when the is removed, you know, we know if we've run that one through, through that hazing program. And so far we've not had a single collared lion make a depredation. Um, and so that in itself should be,
1: yeah. Oh my God. You know, you
2: would think common sense to a lot of people, but it's just not, um, yeah.
1: Yeah
0: so yeah, yeah Very, i mean hopefully
2: yeah. at some point in time it it does open up the opportunity to have another because you can kill lions in washington state you can actually kill two a year you just can't use dogs to do it so it, it really doesn't make any sense
1: yeah it doesn't make any sense <laughs> and, and same know, with
0: bears you yeah, can kill two bears a you year
1: bears yeah so because you're primarily because you're primarily running your dogs for lions right but I mean are I mean are the problems for bears in the state pretty much the same
2: yeah you know they have not as much with you know being in close proximity to towns and stuff like that you do have some of that Um, but most of the problems with bears come from timber farms they'll go into a new plantation and and peel trees and and kill all that new growth in those timber farms so there is a lot of a lot of damage tree damage within the private timber industry and there's you know a select few guys that work for the state and go in and handle those bears and i think i think the rule is if they find three peeled trees within like a quarter mile section is when when they start that depredation process and that's when you know obviously houndsmen come in and and start catching bears basically um we have i believe and i i might be wrong on this but i believe that we still have the highest population of black bears in in the lower 48 here in washington state so and you can you can hunt and kill two of the resident and a non-resident for that matter can can hunt and kill two bears a year every year it's not i mean it's just an over-the-counter tag and you know there's a lot of guys that do kill two bears every year. I mean, there's a lot of bears out there. Um, and I, I used to run a lot of bears with dogs. And uh, as I started doing more and more of this work for the state, I uh, I kind of switched gears and, and started focusing just on lions. And I, I shouldn't say just lions, lions and bobcats. Um, and started going down this road of trying to build you know the perfect cat dog and so through the process of that i i kind of stopped running bears i started focusing on cats i started focusing on getting into a bloodline of cat-minded dogs and that's kind of where i ended up from there
1: yeah what kind of uh what kind of dogs do you have
2: uh i run they're they're english bred dogs um Lightfoot English is, is the bloodline that I'm running. Uh, but it's had quite a little bit mixed into it over the years. Um, it actually, I can't take <clears throat> a lot of credit for it. It was, uh, a guy up in Canada and British Columbia, an outfitter up there that had originally got these lightfoot dogs that I'm running. Um, and his got probably about 30 years into the bloodline and, through the process of that. Um, some of them came down into the States and a good friend of mine out of Montana, uh, was hunting them. And so I had hunted with him and, and saw his dogs work and said, you know, I got to have some of those. And so that's kind of how I started down this line of English dogs. Um, I do have one Walker dog. I've always, that was where I started with dogs was, was with Walker dogs. And, I've always kept at least one um, just because I, I really like how hard they are on a tree, at least, you know, the Walker dogs that I've owned. And, you know, once, once they go up, I mean, they're trained, they're barking every single breath and they're on the wood. And so I, I do really like that. Um, There in the beginning of running these English dogs, I didn't really have dogs that treed real hard, I guess you could say. Um, they never left a tree, but it wasn't like they treed real hard, like the Walker dogs I'd had in the past. And so that's kind of gone a little bit, the opposite direction now, just, you know, through the years of different breeding and, and different dogs. Um, every dog that I have at this point in time trees real hard. And so, you know, my thought process of always keeping a walker dog there. Um, I probably don't necessarily need that now with, with this bloodline of dogs, but that's why I've always kept one. And so, um, yeah, they're, they're Lightfoot foot English. Uh, some of them are red. Some of them are blue. Some, I have one dog, uh, a tiny little thing called Pearl named Pearl. And she, you would think is a walker dog just from looking at her, but she's as English as they can be. And if you go back to the original line of English dogs that came over, you know, to the United States, she, she looks like that old original English dog. Um, And so that was, and and they're good bear dogs too. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's the up there, the guy that's running them in BC runs a lot of bears, uh, catches a lot of bears, but, what I really like about them is they're, they're really smart um, and they're really track minded and to have, to have a dog that can consistently catch cats in all conditions, you know, phone rings in July and there's a line to go catch. Um, I think that you got to have a really smart dog and you have to have a very track minded dog, you know, nose in the dirt, not picking their head up, you know, just digging and grinding for that track. And you, you can't do that with a dog that doesn't have brains. Also, I would take, I would take a really smart dog with a mediocre nose over a dog with less brains that, you know, may have a better nose. I, I, they, you can make up for a lot in a dog if, if they're using their head is kind of the conclusion that I've come to over the years. And, um I hunt all females. <clears throat> I don't I don't own any males. Uh, so well I guess I got some male dogs now that are stepkids, but um <laughs> up until this point, uh I I'd only ran females and I think that they they seem to mature at a faster rate. And uh I think that whether it's dogs or people or whatever, um, females tend to use their head better and, and think things out and maybe not necessarily smarter, but, uh, they definitely know how to use their brain. And so that's when I switched over to just running cats is also when I switched over to just running female dogs. Um, I didn't necessarily want, you know, that real gritty male in there because those real gritty dogs end up dying. You know, yeah. it's different with a lion than it is a bear. And usually if you get tangled up with a lion, you're either going to have some real expensive vet bills or you're going to be down a dog. So that real gritty get in there and pull hair type of dog um, that I used to love running bears, that's not the style of dog that that I hunt anymore. I, so uh,
1: I have a number of questions from like that. From that point if that's if that's okay
2: oh um, yeah for sure
1: like advice someone especially who is really like getting into this I mean I've you know been hunting with hounds the last couple years but I'm still very new and there's a lot I there's just so much I don't probably understand or um and anyone listening to you know I, I kind of want to ask some questions about like if this is something they want to do something they don't understand Uh, so a couple things I'm wondering for lions what is like the ideal number of dogs like do you want to have you know so many I mean I imagine you probably want to have minimum of two (laughs) it's not more. yeah
2: I uh so I I usually I like to run four or five um it seems like the the times that I've had dogs killed by a cat is when they've got out in front by themselves and they're alone or, you know, if there was only two of them um, and over the past few years have lost some dogs um, that, you know, bad situation, bad spot and a dog gets out in front and it might not necessarily be a mean lion, but one-on-one
0: yeah,
2: that lion wins that, you know, usually.
0: yeah,
2: um, It all kind of depends on on how you want to hunt and the conditions you want to hunt. So, you know, a guy that's a guy that's hunting just strictly the desert. Um, a lot of times you'll see him running, you know, 12, 14, 15 dogs. And I had always thought that that was crazy. I mean, when I was younger, I always just thought that was nuts. And really, if you think about it, um, you know, say you have 15 dogs out there and you got nine of them that are, real good dogs and you got a couple started dogs and a few puppies well those nine dogs are those nine really good dogs are going to find that track and maybe move that track three times faster than than three dogs will when you hit a major loss so you know going through the desert those dogs hit a major loss and those nine finished dogs are going to find that track a lot faster than three will. Um, cause at the end of the day, really the only thing that keeps you from catching a lion is, is time and distance. Um, so the, you know, the time span from when that track was made until when you start it and the distance that cat's gone. And so, you know, there's a lot of times where it's like, man, if we had one more hour, we, we could have figured that out. Well, you know, if you had m- more dogs that can get through that loss faster, uh, a lot of times you'll end up catching that cat that you wouldn't catch with, with only a few dogs. Um, but say, you know, somebody that's just wanting to hunt the winter months, you know, say you live in a state where, where you can only hunt the winter months for lions. I think four to five dogs um, is ideal. you you know, depending on snow conditions, a lot of times you don't want to, overload that track to where you know the first few dogs go through and and trash that track out to where the dogs coming behind them really aren't necessarily running a lion they're just chasing the dogs in front of them and so to try to avoid that and try to avoid overloading that track i i really like to hunt four or five um something that I maybe do differently than a lot of people is like, if, if, if I'm turning loose on a lion, they're all going, um, I don't hold anything back. I don't hope to, you know, catch up to it and get it across the road and feed more dogs. in. um, every dog that I own has to be able to go, you know, truck to trees, they say. And I, I, I do, I turn everything loose and dump the box on, on every track we come across. And, um, a, a lot of that's because most of the area that I hunt, you don't really have that opportunity always to, to catch up and feed more dogs in. Um, but a big portion of that is, you know, I always have a young dog that's up and coming and I never want to let that dog miss an opportunity to see a line in a tree. So from the time they're old enough to, to go, um, it, they go and you know the the older dogs in front of them my thought process on it is is that that pup, one puppy isn't going to go in there and blow that race up um yeah. and if it does yeah. if that does happen the problem's not with the puppy the problem's with your older dogs because those older dogs regardless of what that puppy's doing um they should be finished to the point where they're gonna stick to that track regardless, you know. Um and you have such a fine and and, uh uh
1: sorry are you are you always uh letting them go on a track or do you ever just like free cast them or does it depend? No
2: so yeah I I free cast a lot and especially you know in the springtime um like actually Randy was up here a few weeks ago and Um, when the snow conditions are terrible everything's iced over or you don't have snow um, I pretty much free cast everything whether that's get out and hike a ridge that you know lines are crossing pretty regularly or uh, kick them out and run them in front of my snowmobile and and let them just you know road them up through a canyon or whatever and and free cast them and let them find a track Um, I do that a lot and I I do that a lot, you know, in the summer months and spring when we're looking for a lot of those depredation cats, you know, they, those dogs have to be able to free cast and get out and find a track on their own. Um, and actually I prefer that, like, even if, so even if I go out and cut a track and find a track that I'm going to run in the snow, um, I always rode them into that track. I don't ever just pull up on it and dump them out of the box. I, I take those dogs and I'll start a mile down the road or two miles down the road from where that track is, and and I'll road them into it, and let them get, you know, get all that initial energy out of them and let them clean out, um, kind of get a little bit of energy out of them and get them focused, and then that way when they hit that track, I found that my percentage of cats that I catch doing it that way versus just pulling them out and And dumping them on the track um i i have a lot more consistent dogs if i do it that way and so that's not to say that's the right way to do it i mean you know everyone has their own way but um and you know it varies dog to dog too but That's that's the way that I go about doing it. Um, I always rode those dogs into a track, even if I find it myself.
1: Does that vary with uh it there being snow on the ground versus like dry land kind of or
2: yeah, and you know the reason I kind of started doing it is just because you know, you don't always have snow. And so these dogs have to be able to to get out and find that track on their own when there isn't snow on the ground. Um, and I have to be able to trust those dogs in the dirt. Cause there's a lot of times that, you know, you can't find that track. And so I think just that repetition, you know, constant repetition of this is how we find a lion track. This is how we catch a cat. Um, I think that's important. It seems like in a dog's head to to keep that kind of the same, you know, all the way throughout to where they get used to you know, this is how we go catch a cat. And I think that,
1: yeah, no, that you sense. know,
2: dogs have such a, they have such a finite life where, you know, it takes however long to get a dog started, you know, at different maturity levels. It, you know, varies um, with these dogs that I'm running now though pretty much by nine months that dog's able to go out and and run its own line track and catch his own cat. Um, they just seem to mature at a faster rate than a lot of the dogs I've had in the past. And, um, but either way, you know, you have such finite life with those dogs where by the time they're, you know, five, six, seven years old, they're really starting to slow down and the younger dogs you have come behind them or are, are pushing through and maybe even, you know out your two-year-olds are out running your six-year-olds which is what you want I mean it shows that your your breeding program and process is working um if your younger dogs are you know out running those older dogs but having such a finite life with them like I said I just I don't ever want one of those dogs to miss an opportunity to go and so that from the time they're able to go they go
1: yeah how how do you uh how does, I, I, and I have, I have zero idea about this at all. Um, how do you start a puppy for lion hunting?
2: You know, luckily it, when you first start, um, and I, I've been to this point where you've had to start over and I'll do, you know, I'll do drags every once in a while. Um, a lot of times on these depredation cats, I'll end up with, you know, a chunk of hide or something off of it. And and go and do drags but from the time they're young um i guess i i really spend a lot of time with those pups where maybe some guys don't but in my opinion and from what i've seen um a dog that's connected to you and it feels like there's a bond um i think personally that, that dog hunts harder than a dog that doesn't have that you know that dog instinctively when you have that bond that dog wants to to make you happy and so from the time they're really young I, I spend a lot of time with those pups um in and out of my house you know they'll sleep on the bed they're I, I just I handle them a lot spend a lot of time with them and you know luckily when you have when you have older dogs in front of them um the training process is definitely a lot easier than don't have that so uh I'll kind of let them you know up until the point that that I feel like they have the maturity level um I'll let them run anything they want to run basically um you know if they end up trashing out and taking a deer track or you know whatever it is um I'll let that dog use its nose and, and trail something to a point where I feel like they're old enough to realize, okay, we don't run this and we don't run this and we don't run this. Um, and a lot of times I'll even do that, you know, say I'm rolling the dogs up through a Canyon and that young pup ends up taking a track that it shouldn't, you know, runs a coyote or whatever starts to run a coyote and those older dogs don't go. Um, I'll go to the point sometimes, uh, loading those older dogs up real fast and taking off and drive a mile down the road and, and leave that pup behind where, you know, all of a sudden they turn around and look and, and no one's there and the older dogs are gone. And it's not as fun as it was a few minutes ago. Um, and make that dog run and catch up and realize, oh yeah, we don't do that. Um, I think with, you know, with such a tight pack mentality, um, I think that goes a long ways where, they realize, you know, this isn't something that we do. And so I'll I'll do things like that, as well as, you know, I, I run Garmin TT 15s and you have the ability to shock and tone and, you know, everything else stimulate that dog to, to let it know that, you know, we don't do that, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll do dregs every once in a while, but a lot of it is just, you know, from the time those dogs can keep up they're rodent, with my older dogs they're free casting with my older dogs until the point they're you know really going on their own and uh, at that point is when I kind of start trash breaking from there but what I've really found is running only one species you know running just cats and not running bears not running coons um, you don't really have at least in my experience you don't really have to trash break as much, you know, they're zeroed in on this is the one scent that we run. And it, it seems like there's less desire to go run something else. Whereas the dogs that I've had that have ran bears and lions and coons, you know, all together, I think that dog has more than one job, you know, so it's mine's not as focused on one species. I don't think. Um, whereas a dog that only has one job and this is the only thing we do, um, I've, I've definitely had less trash breaking with those style of dogs than, than say a dog that runs everything. Um, and so that helps a lot, you know, if you, if you don't have the ability to, you know, train them behind older dogs, then it's a lot of miles on your boots and, uh, You know, it's going out and finding that lion track or finding that bobcat track and putting the pup on it and walking with that dog um, until you know. And I, I, I don't usually typically use leashes. Um, I'll free cast that dog, and you know they handle well enough that I, I don't even I don't tie my dogs up at a tree unless we're gonna shoot something out, and uh, I don't leash my dogs out of the woods when when we go and catch a lion and it's time to go, um, I just holler at them. That'll do, that'll do. And they know that that means it's time to go and um, they'll quit training pretty much instantly and fall in line and start walking out of the woods on the trail that I walked in on. And so I, with pups, I do the same thing. And, you know, you go out and find that track and, and put them on it and start walking until they're interested and stick with them until they're you know real interested and walk that track out start to finish and you know hope that by the end of it that that dog's glued to that track and going um it's definitely a lot harder to do it that way i would you know anybody that's looking to get into this um my best advice would be to find somebody in your area that that hunts in a style that you do whether that's you you know you kind of want to get a different dog based on how you're going to hunt it so you know say you you know going into it you only can hunt the weekends um and maybe not every weekend you know find a guy that's that's hunting similar to the amount of hunting you're going to do and and focus on what dogs work for him um and you know kind of get buddied up with someone that has that experience and you know maybe look at getting a dog from the same people he gets dogs from um cuz like i can tell you th- these dogs of mine um if you didn't get out and put miles on them you know four or five days a week they drive you absolutely nuts at the house i mean they're <laughs> you would you would lose your mind if if you took these dogs that i had and and tried to just get them out on the weekend um and so i think that's I think that's something that's really helpful, you know, get in with, with a guy that's hunting in your area that you want to hunt and find the dogs that work well for him. Um, because you know, it's not always, it's not always easiest to go and and get a dog from a different climate, a different environment, you know, different vegetation and expect that dog to do well. in in you know, an environment that it's not used to, um, I've seen really, really great, great, great dogs come out of the Southwest that, you know, you bring them up here to the Pacific Northwest and that cat might climb, you know, 50, 60 feet up a dug fir tree and that dog's never seen a tree that tall in its life. And so I've seen, you know, dogs that come out of that desert country that are phenomenal dogs down there. You bring them up to the Pacific Northwest and a lot of times they can't locate a tree. And it's, you know, not the fact that they can't smell that lion or they're not good dogs. It's, it's just different. And so I I really do think the best way to get started is to, you know, find a guy that's hunting in your area and a style which you want to hunt and figure out what dogs works for him. And if you're lucky, that guy will take you under his wing and, and let you run your pup with his older dogs and you know start training a dog that way um that's definitely the easiest way to do it aside from you know a guy could go out and buy a finished dog um buy an older dog that is already got it figured out and and, you know start to pump up start a pup behind that um but that's a real expensive way to do it i guess depending on (laughs) how you look at it you know what your time's worth but um I could get a lot of money wrapped up in a a real nice finished cat dog that's for certain
1: yeah I I uh when when talking about and it, it it definitely depends from state to state and and where people are um but you know I just started coon hunting with dogs the last couple of years and that's opened my eyes and since then you know I I mentioned that I've been coyote hunting with dogs now, and deer, hog, and bear before, and all were like a little bit, you know, kind of the same idea, but all a little bit different. Um, yeah. And I, I had no, I, I just, I, I can't even, I don't even, I can't I have a hard time putting it into words. And maybe like when I tell people this, I don't know if they like don't believe me or think I'm lame, but I just recently went coyote hunting um, with hounds like locally. Uh, just this, just this hunting season. And I didn't really, I grew up hunting. I coyote hunted a little bit, but not with dogs, nothing with hounds. And I, I love it. Like I really, really love coyote hunting uh, with dogs. Um, I, I just, just think it's a ton of fun. And my biggest thing, I mean, if, if we had more land access that we could you know, drive around and hop from property to property and do that, I think that is something that I could see myself absolutely doing. Um, and it makes me kind of sad because we go with, we go with some friends and some people who have um, permission or own a bunch of land where we can work a big area. Uh, but if you don't have, if you don't have that type of permission or type of land, uh, like it's almost I don't even know how I would do it. I don't know how I would do it. I have no idea.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is almost impossible. And I, you know, I, I spent some time in Wisconsin and, and ran coyotes with dogs. And that was my first experience doing that. And it, it was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, like there in the Midwest, you know, it can be really tough uh, with all the different landowners and all the different sections. And, you know, there's definitely people that are all for the use of dogs and you know there's people that are highly against it so i i do think that's really tough whereas you know an advantage we have i guess in the western u.s is so much access to to public land um and you know national forest or state ground or whatever it may be you have a lot more access to to bigger pieces of ground to hunt i guess i should say um and so that's, you know, that's definitely real beneficial because, you know, when you turn those dogs loose, you don't know where you're going to end up. And, um, my, my philosophy behind that's always been, you know, if I start this track in a good spot and I start this track on a, on a legal spot, um, I'm not necessarily in control of where that dog ends up. And,
1: uh, yes, right. know, so,
2: <laughs> a lot of times you can turn them around. <laughs> Um, you know, and I, I do from the time my dogs are young, um, I use the tone function on those collars and tone means, means get back here. Tone means stop what you're doing and, and come back to where you were. And I instill that really young in them dogs. And, um, you know, that way is if I'm going into an area that I can't be in, or those dogs are heading to a highway, you can't get to it. Um, being able to tone those dogs and stop them mid-race and turn them around is definitely something that's super beneficial. Um, you know, and it's something that 15 years ago, even we didn't have that option. Um, the, the GPS collars, I think has definitely, definitely helped and it's, it's definitely beneficial to guys that are just getting into it and learning how to do this and, you know, being able to, to track and follow those dogs that way whereas you know when I started um all you had was telemetry and uh for anybody that's never used telemetry before it's basically like magic i mean it, i i don't really understand how it always works and you end up you know with lost dogs quite often we used to have you know four or five days on end out looking for dogs with telemetry collars and um we didn't even have enough telemetry collars for the amount of dogs we had. So it was, you know, a lot different then than it is now where you have the ability to, to train those dogs and, and be in more control of those dogs from start to finish that, you know, a guy can spend a lot of time working on that and it, it is definitely helpful. Um, but yeah, like where you guys are at in the Midwest with so many different parcels of ground and you know, so many different landowners that I, I can't even imagine. Um, you know, like I said, I, I bear hunted in Wisconsin up in the national forest up North. Um, but yeah, I coyote hunted in Wisconsin and that was the people that I with that I was with obviously had, you know, a lot of permission and a lot of access, but, uh, there were still times where we ended up knocking on someone's door. Hey, the dogs are you know going to be coming through your backfield here. And, You know, can we have permission to go through and it would be really tough. Um, It's definitely an entirely different, it's an entirely different deal than, than hunting out West for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think that something that I've really been, been racking my brain, I think for the last couple of years is in the Midwest and in Iowa, where we live like small towns, there's a lot of really, really nice people. Like there's a lot of nice people, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a lack of understanding of like hunting in general, um, yeah. let alone like with dogs. So it just sketches people out like a lot, like they just, cause they just don't, they just don't know. They didn't grow up around it or it's just something they haven't seen for years and years. You know, they haven't seen anyone do it for so long. Um, I, I really, I realized Quickly, when you know, when I started coon hunting with my boyfriend, uh, how many times, how many times, uh, people really misunderstood what we were doing. We were actually, I've only shared maybe about this one time on the podcast, but uh, my third time, my third time coon hunting with my boyfriend, um, it was the beginning of like COVID and all of that. So, yeah, uh, we were on um, public land core of engineer ground, there was um there are like nice houses that are up this hill, like off the public land. Um and we're in the woods with with our dog. And all of a sudden you see from the top of the hill, you can just see these lights come like blasting down this road, right? And all of a sudden the vehicle stops, it's pitch dark outside and we are starting to get shot at through the woods. And my, uh, and my boyfriend is like, take the dog and go. And I was like, I am not, I am not leaving <laughs> you here.
2: Getting shot and, at.
1: Yeah. And, uh, so I shut my light off. I didn't listen to him. I just kind of walked a little bit behind a tree and I just shut my light off and like listened because I had my light on. I'm like, I don't want, I don't know who this is. This person is, this guy's screaming, yelling. Jacob is walking up to this vehicle and they're pretty, he's decently far enough away where I can't really hear quite what they're saying. um, when they start talking, but before they start talking, all I hear is two more gunshots. Jacob is up to this guy, two gunshots. And then I don't hear anything. And I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Like this, he killed him. Like I'm out here. I'm next. Like this is, this is what is happening. And what, what happens is the guy shot at Jacob's feet and what's how the story basically goes is his wife woke him up thinking she, in the middle of the night, she looked at it and thought we were on their property, which we weren't even close. Um, He was on like a CPAP machine. It's when COVID, you know, all the like crazy stuff started happening. So everyone's super stressed out. He woke up from his sleep, tore off his CPAP machine. And came down this hill barreling down and he ended up apologizing up and down to to Jacob and saying he was just like um confused and tired he's like so you're confused and tired so you just started you just started shooting through public land at people because you heard a dog barking and you know saw some lights And, and it was my third time ever going and it just it and this is a relatively really nice area um and that just really opened my eyes of like how little people understand or know, and just what they think, you know, what they think about it. It just, it's, it's crazy.
2: Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that think that, you know, you're, you're running bears with dogs and the the end goal is to, for those dogs to kill that bear. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that think that that's how it works. And, you know, I would say, a good, I would say 75% of the time, you know, houndsmen aren't shooting what they're catching. Um, but a lot of people have that thought in their head of, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna run this animal down with dogs and the dogs are going to kill it. And you know, that it's just inhumane and, you know, yada, yada. And, um, yeah, it it can flip a switch in people where I, I, even had a guy, in North Idaho of all places up, you know, in the area that I guide out of. And, um, it's a real small community up there. It's kind of a vacation type area in the summer. There's a lot of, a lot of vacation cabins, but in the wintertime, it's really slow. Um, not many people around and we were running a line one day for a client and, uh, there was a a piece of property. This guy only owned two acres, um, right behind his house. And the dogs were working their way down the ridge and we kind of thought that they were going to maybe end up crossing through the back of this guy's property possibly, um, before they ended up, you know, continuing on through the national forest. And so we go up and, and knock on this guy's door and, you know, tell him, Hey, you know, nice to meet you. Introduce yourself. This is what we're doing. And, uh, didn't actually even tell him that we plan on killing the cat. Just, you know, the dogs might be possibly coming through behind your house and giving you a heads up. And, uh, the guy looks right at me and he said, if they touch my ground, I'll kill them. And, oh you know, at first I try to talk this guy down a little bit and you get to the point where you realize, no, he's serious. And so the dogs are, you know, coming down getting closer and, the guy goes, turns around, walks across the room, front door still open and grabs a shotgun. And I'm like, Oh man, this guy's really going to shoot these dogs if they touch his ground. And so I zip back down the road and talk to the other guy I'm hunting with. I'm like, we got to stop these dogs. We got to turn them around. This guy's going to kill them. And luckily they ended up making a hard corner come down didn't cross through his property. And the whole thing went the other direction. Um, but went back and the next day actually, and talked to that guy and, you know, kind of just explained, you know, what we were really doing and invited the guy to come along and, you know, just come out for the day and see how this works. And the guy did. And, uh, you know, he was pretty reluctant and I'd say grumpy, um, you know, through the beginning of it. And by the time it was done, he'd had an entirely different view on things and uh, apologized and, um, you know, admitted that he was in the wrong and everything else. And so it, you have those people that, for whatever reason, um, you know, they're really emotionally sparked by the use of dogs for some reason. Um, yeah. And I guess yeah. it's, or their I property, no or their property than, too,
1: I think sometimes. Yeah. Maybe.
2: I, and I guess it's no different than being the other way and having that spark that, you know, makes you love them and makes <laughs> you love doing it. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's the same thing. It's just the opposite direction. Yes. Um, and so I guess from that standpoint, you know, I can, I can kind of understand it, um, because I am so passionate about it the other way, but yeah, um, that makes
1: a lot of sense.
2: There's, I think there's just a lot of people that, that are either misinformed or, or just don't have, you know, any idea of, of how it works. And I think something that we as houndsmen a lot of times do um, is, you know, you run into those people that are so against it and, you know, your, your first thought is, you know, screw this guy and, and get pissed right back at him. And really in the long run, all that does is, you know, help, put a bad image on Houndsman and, and burn it into that guy's head even more that, you know, to be against it. And sometimes it's, it's the hardest thing in the world to do, to sit there and bite your tongue and, and listen to one of those guys go off. Um, but really the best thing you can do for, you know, for yourself and for Houndsman in general is, is just be polite and, you know, offer to take the offer to take them along show them how it all works and uh I I think a lot of people would be surprised at you know how far that really goes and how much you can really change someone's viewpoint on something just by by taking them out and showing them how it works
1: yeah yeah I would I would agree I I've been you know on social media like questioned about different stuff and um or like someone's pushing back on me kind of like our earlier conversation about a picture that's like misconstrued or someone who just doesn't understand something and I have offered to have them be on my podcast and um ask me questions and say hey like let's do this you know publicly like please like yeah tell me, tell me what you don't understand and let's talk about it tell me your point of view it won't be an argument it just can be a conversation and um, and every time I've offered that it, no one has taken me up on me on the <laughs> podcast, but they, but they like, it's not abrasive. I just say like, Hey, I'm not, you know, um, I want you to understand my side. I want to understand your side. And usually they're like grateful and they're like, no, that's okay. And then they're, it ends like on a nice note. So I think it's kind yeah. of the same thing as, uh, taking them along with you, just, um, giving them a chance to see for themselves or, you know, seek to understand, I think makes a huge difference. I uh, was thinking, I took a, a, a young kid out turkey hunting yesterday for our turkey youth season. And I would just think, and this is like totally not the same thing, but when you were talking earlier about mountain lions and collaring them and the conservation side of things, are our pheasant numbers and our turkey numbers are just low. Um, they're low in a lot of states. They're uh, not where they should be, and I think a lot of that has to do with predators and animals that are going to eat their nests. Right, and mm-hmm. ra- raccoons are a huge part of that. And I think just in the last month, I've had at I've had somewhere between. I don't know, seven or eight people say to me something to the effect of, well, can't you hunt raccoons all year long? Or when you coon hunt, they, they assume that we're just killing tons of raccoons and most of the time we don't even shoot them. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, same, same thing, but our hunting season for raccoons here is only a few months. It's, it's like November to January. Um, you can't hunt them any other time time of the year and our raccoon population in Iowa is is crazy um they're just turkey hunting yesterday I had three raccoons in the field we you know and I know we thought they were turkeys coming in and they were just big black raccoons um and I watched one of them I was looking through the binoculars and I was like what the heck there was a hen pheasant standing right next to this raccoon and this raccoon was getting into the grass and was eating her nest, like right there. And um, there was three of them uh, rummaging through this field before we had like an hour left of shooting time. And a um, you know, hunter and his dad that I that I took, they were asking about, you know, like the hunting season and I'm like, well, it's only a couple months long um, and not that many people, you know, trapping. Uh, isn't as much of a thing right now with the price of fur being so low. Um Mm -hmm. and so our raccoon population is crazy, but our bird population is really struggling right now. And I want, I want to somehow help make a change in that, have a longer raccoon season, something, because it's it's crazy. Like it's visibly very it's visibly a problem.
2: Yeah. And I think that's something that you know is probably overlooked in a lot of state departments where you have so many other issues whether it be with ungulates or you know it, it, spending money on cwd and and white tailed deer or what have you i mean a lot of that is overlooked i think you know when it comes to birds and when it comes to to raccoons and a lot of people don't even realize the amount of predatory damage that you know raccoons can do um and so yeah i think a lot of that stuff is is really overlooked. And like even, you know, bobcats out west, um I was talking to a biologist one time and mentioned something about bobcats and fawn mortality and the guy told me he's like, "Oh, well, a bobcat can't kill a deer." And I'm like, "No, I I guarantee you a bobcat can and will and does kill a deer." Um and he was in his mind a bobcat can't kill a deer. Well, it was during that predator prey project and we actually watched a bobcat kill a deer and you know that changes his entire viewpoint on things but it was something that that he'd never even thought about and so you know depending on what you have for biologists within your state and you know what their main focus is something that I've I've really noticed with a lot of the biologists that I've worked with is you know they're that type of mindset that it takes to be a good biologist, they zero in on one thing, you know, and that's, you know, if it's white tailed deer and studying white tailed deer, um, you know, they might look at the predatory side of coyotes and white tailed deer, but they're not going to, I mean, once they're zeroed in on something, it seems like that's what they're stuck to. And there can be a lot of other issues going on that, whether it's, you know, there's no state funding for it, or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, I think a lot of that stuff is overlooked. And, and personally, I think that in a lot of states, it's come down to what makes the state the most money. So, yeah, you know, yeah. whitetail deer and non-resident deer tags and, you know, whatever, that's, that's where the money is, I imagine, for yeah, you know, most so. of your guys' stuff. And so, <laughs> you know, that's where the focus goes, um, is where's our money coming from and, you know, what, what can we do to to make more money and what can we do to keep that funding coming in? And so yeah, I I do think that that, that happens a lot, um, in all States where, you know, the focus kind of goes to, to whatever's making the state the most money.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, are you on the flip I guess kind of on the flip side of that? Are there any, I mean, we talked about how the work you're doing collaring these lions is actually gonna help them. Um, you know, there, but like are there any major threats that are posed to them or bobcats in your area? Um anything from like a conservation standpoint with like the predators that you're concerned about or is like a big issue right now?
2: Um you mean as far as like predation on, on lions themselves or as far as the amount of game they're killing
1: <laughs> uh either one <laughs>
2: i guess so uh i guess you know our our mountain lum- our mountain line numbers in in idaho and in washington um i don't think you'd find well you might find a biologist that says otherwise but they it it wouldn't be a true statement um our, our numbers are on the rise, and there's more than enough mountain lions right now in, in both states. Um, really, the only predatory animal to a lion is, you know, the gray wolves that we have now pretty much everywhere in the Northwest. And, uh, you know, one-on-one, like I said, uh, a lion usually wins that. Um, but when it's a pack of wolves, it's a different story and, and something we've seen and actually something we're even seeing in North Idaho is, uh, those wolves will push that lion to a point where it doesn't really have much option other than to turn and fight and, you know, try to, well, basically what happens is that lion makes a kill and wolves come in and steal that kill push that line off but of that lion goes and makes another kill and you're seeing a lot of wolves following lions around yeah. and taking that kill and so it gets to a point where that lion you know is starving to death because every time it kills something and expends all that energy um wolves are right behind it to push it off and so you either have you know a a dead lion or you might have a couple dead wolves whatever way that works out but something else we've seen along with that um and it's turned into kind of a more of an issue from the hound side of things is when you're hunting those lions that have been harassed by wolves so much a lot of times you can end up with a lot more aggressive lion behavior um we found that that running those lines that have been pushed by wolves a lot of times you end up with catching them on the ground you have more lines that want to turn and fight than maybe necessarily climb a tree um and definitely a lot more aggressive lion behavior in those high wolf areas and i guess there's no science behind that yet to prove that you know that's the reason but common sense tells you that you know that's what's going on and so you know I guess from that standpoint the the wolf thing is a major issue across the board whether it be you know predation on lions or or elk or moose or you know whatever the the wolves have kind of definitely taken over a lot of those areas Um, yeah
1: and that was actually going to be my next question um, about the wolves I was thinking about it earlier we were talking about like the new pups you know, the young, the young pups moving in with the old dogs and hunting with them. And when we were in Wisconsin, bear hunting with dogs, some of our, our friends, I was just kind of picking their brain and asking them questions about stuff. And there's a lot of wolves there where we were. Yep. And we, we saw one while we were there. Um, and, you know, their issue was like, hey, we want our dogs to be relatively the same speed like they hunt with a big they hunt with a really big group of dogs but if if they're gonna be a little bit slower you want like a slower pack and a faster pack that kind of stay around the same speed because they don't want a dog that's too far ahead or too far behind because wolves will um take them out
2: yeah kill the dog
1: yeah Yeah, is that like a big issue
2: yeah 100 percent. um that's where You know, like I said, I, I, I really like to have all those dogs hunt together and get used to hunting together. And you, you do want that, that same speed of dog. Um, like you said, whatever that speed may be, uh, you really kind of want all those dogs to be right around there because you do run into that problem quite a bit. Um, and like where I guide out of in North Idaho, um, a lot of times you'll spend, just as much time tracking down where the wolves are as you do looking for that lion track. Um, because you don't want to, you know, turn your dogs loose and, and we've had it happen before. We've got lucky that we didn't end up losing some dogs, but, uh, like we had a lion track one day where wolves had been in the area. Um, and the dogs trailed up right through the middle of a, a moose that the, that the wolves had killed and the wolves were right over on the other side of the ridge and turn around and chase those dogs right back down to the snowmobile trail we were on. And really the only thing that saved those dogs is we were sitting right there when the wolves came back down. Um, yeah. so yeah, the wolf thing is, is turned into just a huge yeah. issue. Um, yeah.
1: yeah.
2: And it's something that, you know, eventually it's going to end up I know eventually it's going to end up costing either me or, you know, some of my friends, their dogs. Um, and actually I've, I've had some friends in Montana that uh, treed a line one day. It was like 150 yards down off the road, um, which it was a real steep hill. And so that was a lot further than 150 yards, but um, they pull up, they could hear the dogs treed, getting their packs and everything ready. And, go to walk down there and by the time they got to the tree six wolves had come in and killed every dog that was there oh my god and so yeah it's it's definitely turned into kind of a major issue for sure
1: and and this this is not the same thing but i i've recently also fallen in love with grouse hunting and yeah. i've been in minnesota and wisconsin and when we got our um our brittany our little bird dog puppy Uh, he didn't actually like walk the timber with us when we went when we first got and we had a grouse hunting trip and so every time we came back to the truck we would introduce him to grouse and stuff you know we didn't actually take him with out but there was obvious wolf sign I mean fresh like fresh poop on the ground trails I mean there was a track and poop there that wasn't there when we were on the way out you know the way there and the way back it was there so they were obviously around. Um, and I, I would really, I would really, really love to grouse hunt with my dog. Um, that's another like type of hunting that I have fallen like madly in love with. And I wish I could do more regularly in Iowa. We don't, you know, we don't have that. Um, but just not very far away and it's super fun. And, and I think that straight, uh, would take to it really well, big open areas, but he's, he's, not a very big dog and we only have him for a bird dog right now. I just don't know if I could, I think I'd be anxious the whole time. Yeah. Um, and we plan on going uh, this fall um, and we're going with a friend who has dogs. So I feel a little bit better about that, but that just makes me super anxious. Like, I don't know how bird hunters are doing it. I know people who lost their bird dogs in Montana um, to wolves uh, co- a couple years ago. And, um, I, yeah, I have mixed feelings about it. Cause I, I just don't want to put my dog, my little dog, especially my little dog, my little single dog in that situation. I mean, he'd be wolf meat for sure.
2: Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that when you're in those areas, we, you know, we tend to stay out of those areas if there's, um, even gone to the point of finding that lion track, you know, in the middle of a bunch of wolves and taking off on foot uh leaving the dogs behind and following that lion track to the point that the wolves split off and yeah Yeah. and make sure that the wolves are headed the other direction than the lion and you know start it from there and go but yeah I mean it's there's definitely a lot of anxious feelings in that time when you're in that wolfy area and do you feel like
1: the wolves push like when they know like where you're at with humans like are they gonna move on with like humans being there do you feel?
2: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, and that's something that I think's probably saved us from ever losing dogs is, you know, once we turn loose up there, we're on snowmobiles and we're sticking to as close to those dogs as we can be. Um, and I do think that wolves have a, I don't even know if it's a fear or if it's a, they just don't want to be seen. Um, yeah but I feel like as long as you're staying close to those dogs and as long as there's that I guess human connection close by um I don't think you'll really run into I I can't say that you won't ever but I think the chances of running into an issue with wolves you know in like a bird hunting situation where you're Mm -hmm. you're closer to that dog you know it might be casting out and ranging quite a little bit in front of you but just the sound of human voices. And um, I would even go as far as, you know, maybe run a bell on that dog. Um, Yeah. And just having that outside kind of that outside different noise, um, I think pushes wolves away pretty consistently.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm still, I'm feeling better about that part of it and understanding, you know, being from being from Iowa, and growing up hunting here and just starting to get in you know hunting out of state more and doing different things um again has opened my eyes so much but just being from the midwest like that's never something i had to worry about or think about before yeah. um just not just not how we hunted or even gave any thoughts to you know so it's just it's interesting and i and i can't believe how much time's already gone by because i i uh like have so many questions but i do I do want to know a little bit more about your guiding too. And, um, and and what that, what that looks like for you. Um, are you, you're in, so you're guiding in Idaho, right? Are you guiding any, anywhere else typically?
2: Um, Nope, just Idaho. Um, I have done, I guess a little bit of guiding in Montana, um, years back, but Nope, just, just Idaho. Um, and we're, so it's Selkirk guiding and outfitting is the, uh, the outfit and we run up out of the northern panhandle in unit one there in Idaho and um we're the only outfitter up there in Unit One One. We have we have the whole the whole region there. And that's where Idaho is different from a lot of states um where you have an actual outfitting board um and you have actual licensed areas that you are confined within, you know, hunt that area. And so there's a lot of states where it's, I guess, easier to guide, um, and you can kind of guide, you know, statewide and do whatever you want. Whereas Idaho is pretty strict on, you know, this is your unit, this is your area, this is where you stay. And, you know, there's, there isn't other outfitter competition within that area, um, which is nice, but yeah, so I, I guide there out of the Northern panhandle, um, mostly lion hunts. Um, I have guided some moose hunts. I've guided some elk hunts. Um, but typically those fall into times that, you know, I, I like to elk hunt myself and, um, I'd rather go out and, and elk hunt myself or deer hunt myself than than pack somebody around. Um, I used to guide mule deer hunts out of Washington, um, right out of high school. I worked for an outfitter, guided mule deer hunts up there for him for a couple years and just kind of got to the point where I was I was burned out on packing guys around that didn't really have any business being in the woods and um you know killing mule deer and so it's yeah pretty much just lion hunts Um, we only take typically at the most maybe seven guys a year um and they're guaranteed lion hunts um, the the price is definitely a lot higher than a lot of other places, but uh, you got pretty much five star amenities, and and the difference is is you know you go pay for a five day lion hunt with no guarantee, and you got one guy out there that you're hunting with one houndsman, um, and you may or may not ever even cut a lion track. Whereas the way we operate is, you know, we have one one hunter in camp at a time um we stay at a really really nice house there um have a cook there all the time i mean breakfast lunch dinner snacks you name it um everything's prepared and ready and you have instead of just one houndsman out packing you around there's three or four of us and our goal is you know for all three or four of us we're, we're there hunting for that one guy and uh we only kill toms, we only kill mature toms, and that's where, you know, we're only taking five to seven guys a year, and that's kind of, with our area, um, another thing that we have going for us is, it's kind of up at the end of the earth, really, the highway ends uh, just north of the cabin, and then it turns into a snowmobile only trail, Um, and all the roads up there in the area that I hunt, once there's enough snow for a groomer to come and groom a trail, uh, it shuts down all road access. So you can't drive trucks anywhere. It's all off of a track machine. And so, and, and it's so far out of the way, you know, there's a lot of good areas to hunt before you get up to where we're at that, you know, your average houndsman looking to save money any way he can, because there's so much money wrapped up in the sport that, um, it it kind of keeps a lot of guys out of our area, uh, just cause it's a more difficult area to hunt. You have to have a snowmobile. Um, and then at the same time you're you're competing against three or four guys that are up there all the time. And you know, you might get there in the morning and we've already run seven or eight of the roads you're trying to get to because we slept there at night and it's a lot easier to wake up and get it done. Um so in that aspect it's it's kind of nice. We really have A lot of the area to ourselves, Um, we can somewhat, I guess, almost say manage it. You know, with only taking six to seven lines a year out of there. Um, And another thing we really have going for us is we're we're right on the British Columbia border, and we're right on the Washington border. And as that snow gets deep and hardens up enough to where you know stuff can walk on top of it, you have a deep freeze or whatever um, we'll have a lot of lions move into the area from Washington and, and out of Canada. And so we can go and hunt those kind of fringe pieces, um, and run into, to toms that weren't there, you know, two weeks before that have just migrated down into that area. And so, uh, it's a, it's a really nice area to guide out of. Um, we kill, I would say, close to 70 percent of the lions that we kill out of there go Boone and Crockett. um they're definitely trophy lion hunts and like i said it's it's at a really high price range it's uh at a point that i would never pay for a lion hunt but at the same time we got guys booked out two to three years in advance so um kind of as long as the hunts keep selling we're gonna keep the price point there i guess but um it's a real good experience like i said you'd you have three guys that are out hunting just for you and you know that no matter how many days it takes us you're guaranteed to kill that trophy tom um and even if that means we have to bring you back the next year in order to get it done then that's what we do and luckily we've never had to do that um the longest we've ever had a client there was nine days and it was just a real real bad weather pattern and um kind of just couldn't catch a break on on the way the weather was working and finally got a little bit of break in the weather and ended up getting it done on day nine but typically we have guys there you know three to five days somewhere in there and you know say say a guy books his flights already and and plans on staying a week you know if we kill a line on day one we, we still hunt with that guy for you know the whole time he's there so a guy might see eight or nine lines in a tree by the time he goes home. You know, it's not like, Oh, you killed your line. You got to get out of here. It's, you know, what day do you plan on going home and, and we'll keep hunting. So it's one of those deals where, you know, we're going to go out and hunt regardless. So you might as well be there. You know, if you're going to come and book a hunt, you might as well stay and, and see some more cats and trees and watch some more dog work. And, um, it's been, it's been a real good deal made a, you know, quite a few client relationships through that and friendships that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And, um, everyone leaves typically more than happy. So yeah, it works out pretty well.
1: Amazing. I have a couple things, I, a couple of things I want to ask you, but I, I do want to tell you that about halfway through our podcast, my boyfriend came home. And the podcast listeners know who Jacob is. He's been he's been a special guest a few times. Uh, and he this you are like speaking his language right now. So he's sitting here <laughs> um, in the corner, and he's been texting me, fielding me things to ask you. And pretty much every time, pretty pretty much every time he sends me a question, you answer it before I even ask you. Um, and he's like he looks at me, and he like taps his head like yeah we're on the same wavelength like <laughs> I'm like oh my god, that's funny yeah but he's like love he's loving this conversation because this is this is what he loves and this is his world and and hounds and just everything so it's kind of funny he's sitting on the he's sitting on the couch listening uh live <laughs> right now and he's enjoying it <laughs> he's he got a smile on his face it's just it's it's really funny um but i was wondering you know like just meeting have I've gotten to know so many guides now and I love having um, guides on the podcast and like getting their perspectives on some things because um with all the work that you do with your dogs and you know specifically lion hunting and then guiding do you get to get away to hunt on your own much and if you do you know it sounds like you love like deer elk deer and elk hunting, but like, is there something you really like to to do for yourself and something that you really enjoy hunting wise?
2: Um, you know, to be honest with you, the, what I love the most about, about guiding it, I guess it sounds bad, but at the end of guide season, when we don't have any more clients and, you know, everything's done and over with and, and you can just go out and hunt and like, especially, you know, late spring, March rolls around and it's just, throw on some snowshoes and take off and hike a ridge with your dogs. Um you know there there's a lot of pressure for that, you know, 6, 8, 10 weeks whatever it works out to be that we have clients there and I, I guess the pressure's definitely self-imposed. Um you know the guy that I work for is a really great guy to work for. Um and he hunts right there alongside us and you know we're we're always successful in the end. Um, But there's still a lot of pressure you put on yourself, just, you know, trying to make sure that you get it done. And so when that's finally done and over with and clients are tagged out and that work aspect of it's finished, um, you know, being able to just sleep in a little bit, wake up in the morning around six or so and, and go out and load your dogs and, and just go hunt and not have any sort of pressure, you know, it doesn't matter if we catch a cat or not. And you know, we can run this small female track that we've been looking at for the last six weeks and and not running because we're looking for a Tom and um you know being able to just go out and hunt with those dogs and not have any pressure there is is probably my def- definitely my favorite of any sort of hunting I do. Um, and I really think the dogs can sense that too. You know, the dogs pick up a lot on probably even more than you realize on your body language and, you know, the, whatever you're feeling and that higher tension, you know, I think that when that's all said and done, those dogs relax quite a little bit too. And, and it's just an entirely different, it's an entirely different feel to everything. Um, once that guiding's done, you know, cause there's so much times, whether it's, whether it's guiding or doing depredation work or like this collaring work, um, there's times where I don't really have the option to not catch that cat, you know, whatever it takes, whether it's walking a mile down into the ridge and seeing where they hit that loss and trying to help them figure out or whatever. I mean, when, when we're running a big Tom for a client, you know, there's, and luckily the guys that I hunt with feel the same way. Um, it, the the option of not catching that cat's not there and yeah. so you know same with this collaring work to have to have really good across the board statistics and and keep everything the same every single time um you know like when when we do turn dogs loose on that collared cat we have to catch it in order for the study to be successful we have to catch that cat and we have to get good data from it so, you know, making mistakes or, or not catching it's not an option. And same with these depredations. Like, if I get called to a depredation, like I said, I, whatever it takes to get that done, we're going to kill that lion. And so I think that not only for myself, but for the dogs too, I think when that's finally, when that pressure is finally lifted and you can just go out and, and hunt and it doesn't matter whether or not you catch anything. Um, that's definitely my favorite time of the year for sure.
1: Yeah, no, and I don't think that's bad to say, you know, because you love it. You know, I think, I think that um, anytime, anything, anytime anything becomes work, it gets like hard and can like play mental games with you and um, all of that. But to, to be able to enjoy that time at the end for yourself and do what you love, I think is really important, whether you're, a guide or or not, you know, just to take to take that time to do those things that you love for yourself and for your dogs. And um I think that makes a ton of sense. And I I think that uh probably keeps you sane, right? And keeps you coming yeah. back to doing it every every year. Uh yeah, so and you
2: know, really great. like there's times where and you know kind of a mentor of mine and a guy that's really helped me a ton through just this whole process of you know trying to make really nice cat dogs um you know there's been times where you do get a bad client or you have a rough few days or whatever and um I'll be talking to him back and forth kind of as the days going on and get to where I'm you know maybe complaining or being negative or you know whatever and there's times where he's just called me and said hey like quit quit your bitching you're getting paid to go out and catch lions and you know a shitty days catching lions is still a better day than a lot of people have so there's times where you got to sit back and kind of look at it and you know it's like a lot of people would love this opportunity and even on the worst of days it's still better than than what a lot of other people got going and so there's been times where he's had to put me in check and uh <laughs> you know, tell me to suck it up and quit complaining and just go catch cats. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to have a friend that'll bring you back in line when, when you do start to get negative about it. Cause you know, just like anything else, work is work and you do have bad days, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a good thing to be involved with. And, you know, not everyone gets paid to just go run their dogs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and since we're, I mean, I don't really wanna wrap this up at all, but like on that note too, do you have suggestions for, I mean, maybe folks like me who are just like getting into this and trying to just educate themselves too or um, become better houndsmen, like are there, are there people or resources out there that you would suggest um, like mentors or people to follow uh, podcast to listen to or anything like that that would be good for um
2: you know there's uh obviously the w hunt and supply podcast um buddy woodbury's a, a real close friend of mine and uh he's one of those guys that i call when when shit gets tough and i am having a bad day and and vice versa it's the same way um and so yeah he owns w hunting supply um and in the last couple of years has started a podcast and and gets a lot of really good guys on there um you know a lot of houndsmen from all across the country are on there and and through that he's there's also some other guys that have started podcasts kind of underneath him um and there's you know a few of those that are really good to listen to and another good one is is houndsman xp um they do a really good job of of branching out and getting, you know, whether it's coon hunters or lion hunters or bear hunters, they have a wide, a wide array of people that they end up getting on their podcast. And, you know, a guy can learn a lot just from, from sitting down and listening to those. And even if it's not something, I think something that's really big is, you know, say it's a coon hunting podcast and, and you're not a coon hunter, you're a lion hunter you know, there's still a lot that a guy can learn about dogs in general, just from listening to what another guy has to say about, you know, the way the style he hunts or, you know, what have it. I mean, dog work is dog work. And at the end of the day, that aspect's kind of all the same, you know, the game that you're chasing might be different, but dog work is still dog work. And, uh, a guy can learn a lot from, you know, a lion hunter can learn a lot from a coon hunter. Um, just, I think, keeping an open mind and and listening to what other folks have to say. And, you know, something that I think every young person or every young houndsman um, is guilty of, and, I mean, I myself was too, is you kind of get to that point where, Where say you have a group of dogs that are doing pretty well and you're new to the sport, but you're being, you know, pretty successful and um, get to where you think you know it all and, you know, don't want to listen to what somebody else has to say. And in the long run, you you finally do hit a point where it's like, oh, yeah, I I didn't know it all. And I didn't necessarily have the best dogs then now. And a lot of times I'll look back on it you know, some of the dogs that I thought were the greatest dogs on earth at 18 years old are not dogs that I would even hunt today. And so I think when you get to that point where you think you know it all, um, it's best to just kind of take a step back and and try to gather in, you know, as much information as you can um, and not not look down on another guy because, you know, he hunts bears and you hunt lions or you know you have better dogs because you do this and and he does that like I was just talking to somebody recently and um I think I actually mentioned it to you and I was listening to a kid that was kind of going off on coon hunting and no that's just a coon dog and you know yada yada and and realistically a dog that can successfully go out if if you're hunting with a real coon dog that can go out and routinely catch coons and be accurate and be on the right tree and you know effectively do that consistently that takes a special dog i mean that's no different than than having a dog that'll grind out a old line track in the dirt i mean a dog that can run in the dark and routinely pick the right tree that, that coons in um you know that's a great dog and just because you hunt lions and you know think that you have better dogs because you're hunting big game or what have you um like I said at the end of the day dog work is dog work and a guy can learn a lot from just any other hound handler that's you know successful um and I think another thing for you know guys that are getting into it is there is a lot of bad apples out there um you know there's a lot of houndsmen that aren't necessarily great people and do get themselves in trouble and do things that they shouldn't do. And, um, you know, if, if you run with that crowd, eventually you're going to be wrapped up in the same thing. And I think that finding that good mentor, finding a guy that's, you know, good at what he does and, and follows the law and, and isn't getting himself in trouble. Um, that's definitely the the type of person you want to try to attach yourself to, because like I said, there, there is a lot of bad apples out there and a guy can get wrapped up in the wrong stuff pretty quick. So as, as far as podcasts go, you know, that W is a great one. Um, Townsman XP is a great one. And, you know, I think you're going to see a lot more, a lot more from the meat eater guys, um, on, on hounds and learning about hounds. And, um, you know, Giannis Patelis with the meat eater crew, he just recently got a dog here in the last couple of years and he's come down and hunted with us a few times and brought his dog down and, and, uh, you know, let his dog hunt behind ours. And, um, Steve Rinella came over and killed a lion in North Idaho. We guided him on a hunt and those were guys that were, you know, had no clue about hounds before had never even been around them. And, uh, and kind of got somewhat hooked, you know, and Giannis went out and got a dog and, and they got involved with Clay Newcomb who,
0: yeah, who he's has my dogs favorite. and
1: yeah, I, love yeah, I mean, <laughs> his podcasts are
2: great. Yeah, um, and I really Clay him. actually came up and Clay came up, uh, I think it was two summers ago and came up and bear hunted and spent a couple of weeks up here and, um, you know, really knowledgeable guy. And I, not that those guys, you know, always have podcasts that are hound related, but when they do, um, you know, I'd say they're worth listening to because they're, they are really educated guys. And even if they're new and they don't necessarily know what they're doing, they go out and find the answers typically before they talk about it. Um, and I think, you know, for a guy that's just getting started, like, Giannis would be a great guy to listen to just because he's going through the exact same process that you're going through and you know, trying to get into hounds and trying to get involved with it. And um, you know, I think his his journey through it has been real eye opening. And like I said, he's he's brought his dog over and hunted a few times, and I think was really grateful for that experience to be able to come over and do it and um yeah I think when they when they have podcasts out there that are hound related they're definitely worth listening to and and just I guess hunting related in general you know clay clay's podcasts are great that's by far um the one I listen to every week and and don't usually miss is is that Barry grease podcast
1: (laughs) it's my favorite um,
2: yeah I listen to that you know like I said buddy's a real good friend of mine but there's a lot of times I don't listen to that podcast, but I do always listen to, to the bear grace one.
1: Yeah. He's just, it's exactly what you said. It, it's um, when he speaks on subjects, he's really educated on, it's awesome. And then when he isn't educated on it, he finds like the best people to talk on it. Yeah, exactly. Educate you. And it's, it's really good. And it's entertaining all the way through too, on top of just like really fascinating.
2: Um, yeah, for sure. I,
1: I, res- I respect his style a lot and I love listening to him so that that's cool um yeah definitely a top definitely a top podcast for me for sure
2: yeah me too I think it's one that a guy can learn a lot from and um I I do think that you're going to start to see kind of some more hound related content coming out of those guys um yeah that's exciting kind of, kind of foresee that in the future so I think that's one that's going to definitely be worth tuning into when, when they do have something to say on the topic. And, um, you know, actually that, that meat eater podcast, uh, uh the guy that I call her with, um, and a good friend of mine that I've hunted with for the last 15 years, he's actually, he's gone on and, and done a couple of podcasts with meat eater and explained a lot about lion behavior and training dogs and, you know, this whole collaring project that we're doing and everything else. And, you know, even going back through and searching for some of those podcasts um, and, and listening to them, a guy can learn a lot. Uh, Bart George is his name. And like I said, he's a, he's the biologist we work under um, for this Kalispell tribal project we're doing. And he's extremely well-educated. He's a great houndsman. He's been at it for, about as long as I have been, um, which I was thinking about that today, and uh, I think I'm I'm going on year eighteen, so time kind of flies. I'm getting old, but uh, yeah, he's he's been doing it for a long time, and anytime you see his name come up on on a podcast, whatever it may be, it's definitely worth one tuning into and listening to. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. I appreciate that. I I I love it. Like just with how busy. Our life is and um everybody's like if I can have a podcast playing in the background um I'm pretty much always having one play in the background while I'm working or doing whatever uh just because I I feel like even though I've been hunting my whole life um there like I've mentioned multiple times in just this episode of There's different types of hunting that I'm realizing I love. Like I'm falling in love with, and I just I'm I'm like a doesn't matter that I grew up hunting. All of this is so different and so new than what I grew up doing. I just I feel like I'm trying to make up for lost time, you know. Because i I hope uh, I hope working with dogs and with hounds is a part of my life for forever. I I I love it. I love watching them, Um, and it's just, it's just really, it's just an interesting, it's just an interesting way to live. And so, and I appreciate it a lot. Um, and and I appreciate you you so much for being on this podcast talking about, I've already had you on here for like two hours. I don't don't want to like (laughs) hold you up any longer. Um, Oh no, I, I got
2: plenty of time. I mean, we can, (laughs) we can talk for forever on this subject, but no, like you say, I think, and, and once you get that bug, um, you know like you say you you want it to be part of your life forever and it it is a it's a different lifestyle change i mean you can't you don't just up and go on vacation um you know there's a lot of things that that normal people do that you can't necessarily do real easily once you get hooked on this lifestyle just because you have you know five or six dogs at the house to worry about um and so it it's there's definitely some sacrifices made um you know it's time consuming um it's definitely financially consuming i mean the whole thing's expensive vet bills are expensive gas is expensive you know breaking down trucks is expensive but um at the end of the day i think the sacrifices are worth it um i guess if i didn't think that way i wouldn't be in the position that i'm in but um, yeah, it's definitely a lifestyle change that I think a lot of people don't fully understand. Um there there is a lot of sacrifices you make along the way when when you got six or seven dogs at the house to worry about taking care of and who's going to feed them and who's going to be there and um it makes some things a lot more difficult, but at the end of the day it's it's definitely worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I I I
1: agree 100%. Um Thank you so, so much, and I, I hope that I can. I don't know, like I, I'm sure I'll have questions or maybe want to run something.
2: By yeah, and before. we can <laughs> we can always sit down and do round two of this. Um, That'd be awesome. Break, that be even awesome. if we got to break this one up into a couple couple different sections, we can <laughs> we can always sit down and do this again. And um yeah. you know I appreciate you having me on, and uh, like I said, yeah we we can definitely do this again. And, um, I'm just happy for the invite.
1: Yeah, no, this is, this has been awesome. And
2: yeah, we'll definitely have to, to get you out and and go run some dogs in Colorado and, and show you a line in a tree. And like you say, it, it probably won't be once you'll, you'll do it and you'll be hooked. And (laughs) next thing you know, you'll have five or six of these potlickers running around the house and (laughs) and, You'll be looking for something to chase somewhere.
1: Thank you again, James, so much for being on this episode. This was freaking awesome, man. Really appreciate you and the work you do and taking the time to talk with us. And all of you listeners, I love you so much. Thank you for being here and leave us a review. Reach out to me. You're always welcome to reach out. Until next time, get out there.